Good morning. Welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Well, it is time again to chat about the Jewish calendar and to explain the nuances of the Jewish calendar before we enter into the most holy of period for the Jewish people, the month of Tishrei. Now, this morning, I decided that I'm not going to give you every bit of calculation, but rather an overview of the calendar. So the Gregorian calendar is based on the solar movement, 365 days every four years, an extra day is added to the month of um, February in order to ensure that the seasons fall within their proper time and that we have surety of the months of the year. So we want December 25th, Christmas, to always be in the winter. The solar calendar provides that with the four extra day in the fourth year. The Muslim calendar is based purely on the lunar cycle. And that is why Ramadan and other Muslim holidays vary as to their time and dating and even placement within the calendar year. Some years, Ramadan is in the summer, early summer, some in the late fall. The Jewish calendar is an amalgam of both the solar and lunar calculation. It still has 12 months of the year. But in order to ensure that Rosh Hashanah is always in the fall and that Passover is always in the spring and that Hanukkah is always in the winter, notice I haven't said that they fall on the same date in the Gregorian calendar. They always fall in the proper date on the Hebrew calendar. Nine times out of 18 years, an extra month is added, usually around the time of March. So, this year, Rosh Hashanah, which takes place as the spiritual head of the year, but is really the beginning of the seventh month, is just a few weeks away from my recording. We are therefore in the month of Elul, which is really the sixth month of the calendar, because Passover takes place in the Hebrew month of Nisan, which is always the first month of the year. If you are confused by this, join the club. I have um, spoken at greater length with greater specificity on other 
uh, shows, and you can perhaps find a complete explanation on a previously recorded show or by looking on the internet um, for a more comprehensive explanation of the mathematical equations that go into the determination of the Hebrew calendar. Having said something about the calendar, I've introduced the notion of Elul, the Hebrew month before the Rosh Hashanah. And Elul is marked by many different traditions. Usually during Elul, in the morning service, the shofar, a ram's horn, is sounded. And in addition, on Elul, depending on whether you're Sephardic, namely coming from a Spanish, Portuguese, or Arabian background, or Ashkenaz, meaning from a European, Eastern or Western European, there are special prayers added to the service. So I want to speak about the additions to the service and give you a sense of the notion of slichot, repentance. I want to begin with a story. Actually, it's not so much a story, but an explanation. During the month of the Elul, Jews are supposed to do a cheshbon hanefesh, an accounting of the soul. And the story is told of a person who comes to their rabbi and says, I know that I'm supposed to do a cheshbon hanefesh, an accounting of the soul. And though I have a bachelor's degree in mathematics, I can't figure this one out. And the rabbi is purported to have answered, in this case, a doctorate in mathematics wouldn't help you. Mathematics deals with dry numbers. Whereas an accounting of the soul, as suggested by its name, deals with matters of the heart and soul. The sixth Lubavitch Rebbe gives a relevant parallel to the Cheshbon HaNefesh, the account and balance sheet every business creates yearly. Who actually needs such an accounting? Some may argue that it is necessary for Revenue Canada, but any business person knows that a balance sheet, without a balance sheet, he has no way of knowing whether his business drew profits or losses. The fact that a store is full of shoppers doesn't tell us anything. People may come to browse and compare prices, but not everyone who enters the store makes purchases. Only when the owner draws up a proper balance sheet does the owner know whether the business is profitable and the year is successful. We too, says the Rebbe, can be busy from morning to night, but once a year, we need to take time off to contemplate our most important business. And what is our most important business? That is service of our creator. Have we progressed towards this goal in the past year? Have we improved our relationship with God? 
Have we become better people, better Jews? Those are the questions that worshipful, believing, practicing Jews ask themselves during the month of Elul. And it's an entire month, not a day. So I want to suggest a practical guide that is often used in the Jewish community for conducting cheshbon hanefesh. And this guide, used within various aspects of the Jewish community, is not intended to be completed in one day. So step one, draw two large squares on the per on a piece of paper. Title the first one, Me and God, and the second, Me and My Fellow Human Beings. Now you'll remember that the Ten Commandments are divided into these same two categories. Ben Adam Makom, between God and man, between Adam v'chavero, between man, humanity, and their co-human um, beings. So here's the cheshbon hanefesh. In the me and God category, one is asked to write down the various religious observances that one has participated in during the year. Some examples. For men, do you put on tefillin, phylacteries? Women, do you light Shabbos candles? Do either of you keep kosher? Do you observe Shabbat? And then in the same listing, you note the degree to which you observe them. Next to each of these behaviors, mitzvot, commandments, write down whether this is an area in which you have incurred a profit or loss in the past year. Was I more kosher? Was I less kosher? Was my Shabbat observance complete? Was my prayer practice complete? Was it better than last year? Keep in mind that identical balance sheets can indicate a profit for one person and a loss for another. For example, a man who began putting on to fill in phylacteries or going to services this, this year alone can write, I went to services almost every day. Well, certainly that person has shown a profit from the previous year. But for someone who began going to services 10 years earlier and now is going to services less often, though still going to services, one should consider a loss. The next step. In the me and my fellow humans, write down notable relationships, your children, your spouse, your parents, your friends, your work buddies, your acquaintances. Here too, write down next to each one whether you became closer to these people, distanced yourselves, or did things that you would have been better off not doing. Now, I'm going to suggest two more steps. And these two steps are the most important. Without them, all the time invested in this accounting is for naught. 
Take the losses of the year and turn them into profits. Ask yourself, how can I be a better parent? How can I perform greater mitzvot, those behaviors that connect me to my God and to my people? How can I improve the atmosphere in my home? How can I devote more time to Torah study? And should I be expanding my business? Are there, are there areas that don't even exist on my balance sheet that I should explore? A new ritual behavior, a new aspect of tzedakah, a new relationship with a different human being. Of course, all until now, all the reckoning that I've suggested has been relatively quantifiable and as such is not difficult. But the next step is, of course, the most challenging. Now is the time to look beyond all the individual behaviors and analyze the patterns. Or to put it differently, in spiritual terms, to look at the inner soul workings that caused all the prophets and souls. Why are we failing in certain areas? What is your perspective on life? How important to you are your relationships? Do you have a deep-seated fulfillment, commitment to fulfill your spiritual calling in life? Once you have a better picture of who you are now and who you'd like to be, then come the holy days, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And you are, using a different metaphor, ready to get under the hood and make the necessary changes and commitments. The month of Elul is not simply about resolutions. It is about becoming a different person. This soul-searching process is what is meant in Hebrew by Cheshbon HaNefesh. Such work takes time. And you know, many a business shuts down an operation each year in order to draw up a profits and loss report. But in Jewish tradition, we believe that God rewards us with a successful and blessed year based on our cheshbon hanefesh. Well, I promised you that we would talk about the notion of slichot. Because once you've done a cheshbon hanefesh, once you've taken an accounting of your behaviors for the year, there may be the necessity of repentance. As we are in the month of Elul, all Jewish communities begin to reflect on the ways and deeds in a spirit of repentance. As I've already suggested, the reason for our reflection and introspection is because we are preparing for Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and the Day of Judgment, and Yom HaKippurim, the Day of Atonements. However, there is more than just proximity to the start of the civil year in the Jewish calendar that makes Elul an ideal time for repentance. Of course, many people point out the similarity between the Hebrew word Elul and the word to search in the Aramaic language. 
And this is the perfect time for us to look inward and search out the state of our moral character. For this reason, the entire month of Elul is considered a time of personal repentance and self-judgment. And though we have the holy days to petition God for mercy and forgiveness, the tradition says we examine ourselves, as I've already suggested, before we stand in judgment to make sure that our hearts are pure and true. In the Sephardic tradition, this season is a bit more obvious. For the entire month prior to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, one adds the slichot, the penitential prayers, to the morning service. From the second day of Elul, they are recited in the presence of a minion, a full congregation of more than 10 men in the tradition for communal repentance. For Ashkenazim, this period is not as long, only requiring a minimum of four days of slichot before Rosh Hashanah. As the new year only falls on certain days of the week, according to the rules of the Jewish calendar, this may vary. If Rosh Hashanah falls on a Thursday or on a Shabbat, then one only recites from after the preceding Shabbat. If it falls on Monday and Thursday, then this period starts about a week and a half earlier. This period is commenced after, immediately after the celestial midnight on Motzei Shabbat, on the going out of the Sabbath on Saturday evening. When in the Ashkenazic tradition, men and women, both adults and their children, engage in prayer and liturgy. Now, what are the Slichot prayers? The Moxor Vitri, an 11th century work describing the yearly cycle of observances and prayers, tells us that it is the custom to begin on the Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah to rise early in the synagogue before the sun rises and beg for mercy. In the words of one poetic text recited at the service, at the conclusion of the day of rest, we come first to meet you, incline our ear from above, you who dwells amongst praise, to hear the song and the prayer. Slichot, prayers of forgiveness, are ancient prayers already mentioned in the second century book entitled the Mishnah. They originated as prayers for fast days. The Mishnah describes public fast days and the order of prayer for such occasions as featuring a series of exhortations that all end with the words, He will answer us, recalling the times in Jewish history when God answered those and who called upon him. The Tanya de Rav Eliezutu, a Midrashic work that dates at the last at the latest to the ninth century, mentions a special service of forgiveness instituted by King David when he realized that the temple would be destroyed. How will they attain atonement? He asked God and was told that the people would recite the order of Slichot and would then be forgiven. 
God even showed David, according to this Midrash, this story, that this act of contrition would include a recitation of the 13 attributes of God. A descriptive passage from Exodus 34 that expresses God's merciful nature. It begins in Hebrew, El Rachum Vachanum Erechapayim, Rav Chesed, God, God, the compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, rich in steadfast kindness, extending kindness to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet God does not remit all punishment. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And we count those phrases as being um, attributes of God, 13 attributes, not 13 gods, but 13 ways that we know God. The name yud heh vav was consistently understood by the rabbis as referring to the appearance of God and his attribute of mercy. Therefore, its repetition in this passage, el-rachum v'chanum, Adonai, Adonai, el-rachum v'chanum. Therefore, its repetition indicated that God was merciful at all times. As the later work, the Talmud says, Adonai, Adonai, I am the same before one sins and after one sins and repents. God's compassionate and gracious, says Rav Judah. A covenant has been made concerning these 13 attributes. They will never be turned away empty-handed. The Slichot service, whether during the daily service or the special one on Saturday night, emphasizes the recitation of the 13 attributes. Over the centuries, special poems embellishing this passage were added to the service. The exact poems to be recited may differ from place to place, but the basic elements of the service have remained the same throughout the Jewish world. Because of its emphasis on God's forgiving nature, the text describing the 13 attributes plays an important part in the Yom Kippur liturgy at all. I want to read to you some excerpts from these very special Slichot prayers. I won't read entire prayers because they can be quite long. And in fact, they were written in Hebrew, which means that the English translation misses a little bit of the nuanced meaning. This Slichot prayer is recited just after the recitation of what is known as the watchword of faith, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So here's how this one sounds. Shema, hear, you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. All flesh will come to prostrate themselves before you. God, they will come and prostrate themselves before you. Lord, will honor your name. Come, let us prostrate ourselves and bow. Let us kneel before God, our maker. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courtyards with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Behold, bless God, all servants of God. Raise your hand in sanctity and bless God. Let us come to his dwellings. Okay, I'm going to skip. 
Who can recount the mighty acts of God, proclaim all his praises? Yours, God, is the greatness and the might and the glory and the victory and the majesty, even in all in heaven and on earth. Yours, God, is the kingship and you are exalted. You rule the pride of the sea when its waves surge. You claim them. God is great and exceedingly exalted in the city of our God, his holy mountain. The soul is yours and the body is yours, God, for the sake of your name. We have come relying on you, your name, God, for the sake of your name, for the sake of the glory of your name, for gracious and merciful God is your name. For the sake of your name, forgive our iniquity, for it is great. Slachlanu, Kaparlanu, forgive us, our God, for in our great foolishness we have erred. Pardon us, our God, for our iniquities are many. I'm going to read one more. How can we open the mouth before you who dwells on the stretched out heavens? In what way can we pour out our prayers? You loathed your upright and honest paths. We clung to abominations and despicable deeds. We went after vain and misleading oracles. We were stubborn and acted with insolence because of you. Because of us, you raged against the dwelling place of the holy temple. May we be delivered forever by your right hand's awesome deeds. For in spite of this, we rely on your righteousness. We hope for your forgiveness. We yearn for your deliverance. You are a king who loves righteousness from of old. Almighty God, you are slow to anger. You are called the master of mercy. And you have taught the way of repentance. Remember this day and every day the greatness of your mercy and kindness to the descendants of your beloved. Turn to us with mercy, for you are the master of mercy. Forgive us, our Father, for we have sinned. Pardon us, our King, for we have rebelliously transgressed. For you, God, are good, forgiving, and abundant in kindness to all who call upon you. You can hear in the words of the Slichot prayers the 13 attributes. You can hear the moving nature of this service the mere gathering of people together at a time when they're usually asleep, either early in the morning or late at night, and we sense the extraordinary nature of the prayer and turn introspectively within ourselves. The prayers themselves, as you heard, are pleas for mercy. When they are sung, the melodies are sad and full of longing. Properly chanted, they form an oratorio expressing the despair that accompanies separation from God and the desire to change and repent. The self-depreciation contained in the word which expresses the feeling of life's fleetingness, the burden of vanity that motivates so much of what one does, all cause us to ponder how we can break the cycle of our lives and change for the better. The possibility of change and of better life is inherent in these prayers. And that is the message of Elul through the Slichot prayer that we can change and that we can have a better life and we will prepare for that when we come together on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts, 
I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you a good day and shalom. Shalom, 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 shalom